Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Matthew Holloway. Matthew has over 25 years of experience building high-performance product design teams for some of the world's largest companies, generating greater customer satisfaction, increased market share, and improved profitability in the process. Based in Seattle, where he currently works as an independent design consultant, Matthew is helping companies to build, improve, and scale their design organizations. What gives him the chops to do that? Well, in a previous life, Matthew was a VP in the office of the CEO of SAP. There, he worked with Hasso Plattner, the co-founder and chairman, and Henning Kagerman, the then CEO, leading the global design thinking transformation of SAP's 60,000-person development, sales, and consulting services divisions. In 2009, after leaving SAP, Matthew took on the role of VP of Product Design and User Experience for Shutterfly. For the following four years, he led an aggressive program of ongoing product improvements, as well as a strategic program that resulted in a cross-brand creation and fulfillment platform that delivered an estimated $50 million of annual savings. Then, in 2015, Matthew decided to throw caution to the wind and leave big business behind for the rock and roll of startup life. He has co-founded two companies, including Atlas Informatics, a machine learning-based personal search technology that counted Bill Gates, Nathan Mervold, and Microsoft amongst its investors, and was acquired by Zenova in 2017. As a trained designer, an experienced business person, a former global design exec, a recent entrepreneur, and someone who's not afraid to express a well-thought-out opinion, I've really been looking forward to speaking with Matthew on Brave UX today. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation. So. That's a great intro, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, I was just thinking about that because we were talking before we hit record, and you mentioned to me that you'd also worked at Apple, Netscape, WebMD, and a host of other companies that I didn't even manage to squeeze into your intro. So I, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah me too. One of the things that I didn't mention in your introduction, Matthew, was that you're actually a fine artist as well. And for the past 20 years, you've exhibited in San Francisco and Seattle. And I understand that people from across the globe have your pieces hanging in their homes. What is your art to you? What is it that it gives you that you can't get from the Russian excitement of working in product design? It's a couple things. It's really interesting. I had started, when I first went to college, I started off uh, wanting to do industrial design. And then I wound up the first two years actually doing fine arts instead. And it was really interesting because my dad was a carpenter and like he built the house we grew up in. And every summer we always had these big projects to do. And so I came home after my second year in fine arts and my dad's sitting there and he's like, you know, our house doesn't have a basement. And my first thought was, holy moly, we're going to have to build a basement under this house. That's the summer project. It's like I'm trying to have know, a holiday was, here, Dad. 
Yeah, I'm like, you know, yeah, we don't have a basement. He's, and so he just looks at me and he's like, so there won't be any place for you to live if you get that degree in painting. <laughs> so uh, I made sure to switch over to industrial design after that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, so I kind of set painting aside for a number of years. And then friends of mine actually bought me, I was doing a lot of travel for work at the time, and they bought me a little travel watercolor kit. And so I got back into doing art and I realized there's something nice about being able to be just purely creative with no constraints other than my own and not having to satisfy anyone else other than me. And so it can scratch that itch of just being, you know, just creative and expressive and not having to solve a problem. Mm. So it just, uh, it, it kind of balances out that need to think about design as solving a business problem and, you know, delighting your customers and driving innovation, but, you know, it's still very goal oriented with clear metrics and outcomes. Whereas the art is just an opportunity for me to enjoy my creativity. So. And how often are you giving yourself permission to do that, to enjoy your creativity? You know, is this something that you have in your calendar and it's blocked out and that, no, this is art time or is it, it's just a habitual thing that you find yourself drawn to on a daily basis. What does it look like? Oh, it, it varies based on work schedules, but uh, I do try to carve out like a regular time to paint and explore. It, it just really varies. It comes in waves. Uh, I'll get an idea for a new series of paintings uh, and I'll really go all in on that and do that as much as I can uh, and spend as much time painting as I can. And, you know, it just, it just kind of, goes until I start exhausting that theme and then think about something else. Yeah. I want to come uh, back to your dad giving what sounded like an ultimatum to you. And, <laughs> and it, I mean, it was subtle, but not so subtle at the same time. That's was, my dad. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, was this, was this meant with love or was, was this a, a fairly common sort of stern sort of fatherly kind of figure that, that would say things like that to you? Like, how did you, how was it intended and how was it received? Oh, it, it was his dry sense of humor, you know, being kind of, you know, sarcastic about it. But mm -hmm. he just wanted to point out that he had never gone to college. My mom had never gone to college. My sisters and I were the first ones to go to college, uh, both sides of the family. And so it was important to him that his kids have opportunities he didn't have. And so I think he, he was just concerned that getting a degree in fine arts may make things more challenging in terms of a career and income and stability. He had learned how to be a carpenter from his grandfather when he was 14. And, you know, he'd always done carpentry. His grandfather and great uncle were carpenters. His dad was a carpenter. His brother tried carpentry for a while, but didn't work. I tried carpentry actually for a while. I worked at a lumber mill making cabinets and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's definitely, you know, something I really enjoy. It's just something that I don't commit enough time to. Maybe I'm being overly romantic here and drawing lines between dots that aren't here, but what you have done with your training in industrial design and subsequently in product design, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to me like it's too much of a stretch between say the, the craft and the tactile hands-on approach with carpentry to what you've actually been making and building and designing in the digital world. I think, yeah, I think that's true. You know, growing up as a kid, my dad had a big, you know, wood shop and I would go out and make toys in the wood shop. You know, like if, if the neighbor kids and, and, you know, I were going to play pirates, 
It's like they might just nail two boards together and have a sword, but I would go out and spend three days like, you know, on the bands on the table saw and, you know, routers and all sorts of stuff to come out with this sword that you know, <laughs> looked like a prop <laughs> from a Lord of the Rings movie. And they were like, yeah, we moved on from pirates. We're now doing something else, but you know, next time we play pirates, you'll be ready, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think there is something, you know, I just having that tactical, tactical, tactical. <laughs> I know how to find that one hard too as well. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. I'm so focused on strategy. It has to be tactical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know being able to make things and build things has always just been kind of part of my DNA. So the you know designing products and building products feels very natural. Yeah, I had a look at your art that I could see at least on your website, and you've got a collection in there called Memoryscapes, and you wrote about this, and I'll quote you now: "Growing up in rural surroundings is defined by the ever-present horizon." Mm-hmm. Was that a literal reflection? of an observation from your childhood? Yeah, I, I grew up in rural Ohio. There, there was a friend of mine uh, from graduate school who started working at Crown Industries in Ohio, which is a company that makes forklifts and things. And he, he and I were chatting on the phone and uh, he had grown up in Northern Ohio up in like by Cleveland. And he, this is the first time he was kind of out in the farmland area of Ohio. And he made the comment, he's like, you know, standing there at the sink, like, you know, doing dishes or whatever. And he looked out the window and he said, I could actually see the curvature of the earth. Like there's out this like flat. And so the horizon in Ohio is like in the farmland area, especially it's like, there'll be, there'll be woods, you know, here and there and stuff, but there's always this sense of horizon. And we lived very far out in the country uh, growing up. You could, like if somebody was coming to visit, you could see them coming for like 10 minutes. Cause like you could <laughs> see their car, like on the other side of that field over there, like, Oh, there's Auntie Doris. She's coming quick. Hide. Pretend we're not home. <laughs> I see you've met my Aunt Eudora. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, the horizon was always kind of there. And weather would come in on the horizon. So you would see storms coming in or, you know, sunrises and sunsets were always really spectacular. You know, if you think back to when you were growing up in Ohio, you're looking at that horizon and if you think about now the sense that it gave you, you know, was this a sense of comfort or was it a sense of confinement or something else? Interesting. It wasn't confinement so much as it was, I think it's kind of the opposite. I think it's more opportunity, like just the space and the vastness of the world, you know, in terms of what's out there. It, You know, you could, we had a big woods behind our house. And so you could just, you know, spend hours out there and not see other people. And, you know, just being out in the country like that, you, you have this deep appreciation for kind of the environment and how much space is out there, you know, everyone around us, you know, all of my friends were farmers and my dad was a carpenter. And so he would build stuff for them, but you know, he was, everyone around us was farmers. And so you had this great appreciation for kind of the earth and the, you know, the cycle of everything. And so just, you know, growing up in that environment, you just have a different perspective of, I think, space and our relationship to it. I grew up in, well, I suppose you'd call it a city, you know, by world standards, it's probably a fairly small city. It had about 350,000 people. So I didn't have that, you know, big open spaces, rural upbringing. What I was wondering though, is from your own perspective, do, do you feel that whether it's easier or more difficult to find in yourself where you need to be outside of the the busyness of an urban environment? 
It's weird. I've I've always I, I don't move around a lot. Like I spent 20, 20 some years in the same house in Palo Alto. And so you know, the the sense of place, it's like when when I find myself in a in a place that feels really comfortable, it's really lovely. But yeah, I rarely find myself in a place where I'm uncomfortable. Where it's like, you know, even traveling internationally and things, you know, growing up, I know some friends of mine who've grown up in the same area in Ohio, if they go to a large city, they become very claustrophobic because there's just too many people. And that's never happened to me. I, I love exploring new spaces, new cities, meeting new cultures. When I was in graduate school, I basically did a minor degree in anthropology uh, to understand ethnographic methods better and to you know kind of uh, learn how to appreciate different cultural influences on the designs. And so it's it's always been really fascinating to go to other places and explore other spaces. So. And you've been a particularly busy person from what I gather your whole career, but definitely in the last seven years, you, you've barely had a chance from what I can tell anyway, to take a breath. And in your own words, you've said, and I'll quote again now, quote you now, I have run from startup to startup, moving so quickly, all I could focus on was what was coming next. And then... So this is the end of the quote. So this is me now. And then your time at your last startup, a company that you co-founded, I understand that ended with a bit of an unexpected phone call. The the last startup that I co-founded, it wasn't so much an unexpected phone call. It was, uh, you know, a conversation. We we were building a product that was very data science focused, and we were not making as much traction on the data science side as we were on the business development side. Zayworks is. Uh, is looking at back office processes. And so, you know, kind of thinking about the robotic process automation, you know, the, the UI path and those types of companies. Uh, ben and I founded that company based on the, Siteworks based on the idea of like, so goes automation, so goes what else? And so one of the questions was, how do they know what to automate? So, you know, a bank, for example, may have 40 back office processes you know, everything from commercial lending to, you know, whatever. Um, so which one of those are they going to prioritize to automate first? And so we started looking into it and talking to different companies. We did about 40 different inter uh, discovery interviews with different companies in different section segments. And they were all pretty clear, like, they don't know. Like, the consultants show up and say, hey, we can automate this process. And they're like, okay, automate it. And they don't know, they don't know how much money they're saving because they don't know how much money they were spending before that process was automated. So we developed the idea of Zeitworks that would allow us to do that analysis and then help them do that prioritization. And selling the product was super easy, but doing the data science was super hard. So Ben and I and our CEO at that point, we had a conversation about needing to kind of extend the runway of the company. We didn't want to go back for another round of funding too quickly. And so we opted to basically, Ben and I, to step away from the company uh, in order to give the data scientists and the engineering team more bandwidth in terms of the the planning so so it sounds like you sacrificed yourself yeah but you know i still have <laughs> yes it's like i still have equity in the company so i wanted to be successful but uh and i still you know help advise everyone's wrong with them on things uh i tried to leave them with a pretty cohesive and complete roadmap for the next few years in terms of the products and the capabilities i was the product manager and the sole designer there. So I actually like designed out all of these admin screens and all these admin workflows, you know, for the management of these analytic dashboards 
uh, as well as the types of visualizations that we should try to deliver to people. And so they're still, they still have lots of work to do on those things before they need to, to do any more additional product development work or design work. And from what I could gather anyway, from reading what you'd written about this, you made a conscious decision after stepping away from Zeitworks to do not much. Yeah. So <clears throat> I took some, I definitely wanted to take some time. I was very fortunate actually, you know, this kind of goes back to the painting thing that we were talking about earlier about, I don't know, 15 years ago, 18 years ago, uh, I had started painting again and the house that I was living in in Palo Alto, I actually rented this house for all these years because the people who owned it never raised the rent and it was a fabulous house. They built me an art studio. When the wife found out that I painted, they took what was this little garage and converted it into a really lovely art studio. And I was at this startup company that was pretty toxic and fairly stressful. Uh, in fact, we got written up in a HR book about how not to do layoffs because we, we did such a bad, the CEO did such a bad job of doing the layoffs at this company. And so I was very fortunate and negotiated a nice severance package with these guys before I joined the company. And so when I left, I got laid off. And the day that I get, got laid off, the carpenter finished the art studio. So I came home and he's like, here's the keys, your studio's done. I'm like, what? It's done? He's like, yeah, it's done. So I took that as a sign from the universe that I should take some time off and just paint. And so uh, I kind of been repeating that same thing when I left Sightworks, where I, I felt like the universe was just saying, okay, you need to take a break and just relax and then figure out what you want to do next after you've had a chance to take a breath. So, Yeah, taking a breath. What a necessary thing for probably everybody uh, at various stages of their career to do. And yeah. when I was, I, I read something you'd written about this and it, re it really bugged me, not in a, in a way that you bugged me, but it was something, and I'll explain in a second, but it's something within myself. I was like, oh, this is like, this is territory I need to go into. You, you said, and I'll quote you again, if you have never been at the point where you no longer wake up knowing what day of the week it is, you need to relax and make that happen. Being in a place where you don't have to save up all the fun things for the weekend is awesome. <laughs> and so that, that bugged me because... You know, I could, I can't tell you whether or not I'll ever experience that. And I know that if I don't, that it will be my fault. And yeah. that's what bugged me. Oh, it will be your fault. And you should do that. Mm. That, that actually, after, after, you know, getting laid off from the startup company and, and painting, I would just get up and paint every day and, you know, I'd walk down to the, the coffee shop, get coffee, come back and go right into the studio and just paint. And one morning I called a friend of mine uh, and said, Hey, like, do you want to go get like brunch or something? Like, you know, <laughs> and there's, there's silence on the other end of the phone. He's like, it's Tuesday. I'm at work. <laughs> like you asshole. <laughs> kind of thing. He, was, he was just really not happy that I was like, Oh, I didn't realize it was Tuesday. I, I would have sworn it was Saturday. <laughs> yeah, because it reminds people, right? It reminds yeah. people of yeah. the, this, this, their current state. And they may or may not be happy with it. Yeah, it was fantastic. I did that for over a year. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the one thing that was really interesting about the house that I was in, this house was just the place everybody wanted to go to hang out. And it had like just fantastic mojo. And it wasn't until after we moved, like the, the people who owned the house finally said, hey, we'll sell it to you. They hadn't wanted to sell it before. 
And they finally said, hey, we'll sell it to you. But then I had this opportunity to come up to Seattle. So we kind of looked at our options and decided to move up here. But the person who bought the house off of them knew something about the house that they didn't know and we didn't know, which was it was Phil Lesh's house. And Phil Lesh is one of the founders of the Grateful Dead. This is, this is the house where the Grateful Dead was created. They used to have concerts in the backyard. And that little garage that got turned into my painting studio was where they like rehearsed. Apparently in 1972, Led Zeppelin crashed there with them and stayed in the house. Yeah. And so like this house just had such fantastic energy. And so, you know, even though I didn't know what day of the week it was, friends would show up on Friday to have a barbecue. And so like, they would just like call up. It's like, Hey, we're coming over this, you know, for barbecue tonight, you know, we'll bring everything. And so I just had to like, make sure there was like ice and something to drink and they brought stuff to cook and we just hang out. So. That was like my, that was my only indication of what day of the week it was. Wow. And really interesting to hear that the, and whether or not there's subjectively true as in like whether or not it can be proven, it's really interesting to hear about certain spaces and in, in this case, this house that have this creative energy that sort of permeates across different owners. There's definitely you hear yeah. about these houses that exist and maybe it's the law, I don't know, but there are some places that have this sort of pull to them, don't they? Yeah, it, it it was really wild. Like the moment I went to see the house, it was just kind of a fluke that, you know, I even saw the listing for this house. The owners were there, super sweet couple. Um, and they're just like, yeah, come on over right now. and We'll show you the house. And just walking through the gate into the backyard, it was just like, this place feels amazing. Like, I want to be here. Like, this this feels like, like home. So and it was just a tiny little bungalow in Palo Alto, but it was awesome. Matthew, it sounds to me, and I have been wrong at least once or twice in my life, but it sounds to me that you have had a conversation with yourself at some point about how much is enough. Yeah, I have. And the trade-off of how to get there mm. also. So working in Silicon Valley for all those years, it's very possible to you know work on a product or in a company that may not have the best ethics or morality, the products may be a little sketchy or questionable, uh, but you make a lot of money if you work there doing those types of things. And I've always found it really hard to kind of make that trade off and say like, all right, I'll work on something which is ethically sketchy, but I'll make a lot of money at it. And the same is true, like just in terms of like how much is enough and how, what are you willing to get there? So yeah. And I, I decided a long time ago, you know, like I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to endow like a chair at Stanford or like have a building named after me on some college campus, probably. So I'm not going to make a lot of money and do something like that with it. Uh, well, there's probably a, a few of those coming up for grabs once they scrub some of the oligarchs' names off some of some of them. I'm imagining. <laughs> we'll soon see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they might be going at a discount. You know, you never know. I know. Yeah, maybe they should just, you know, name them after things, you know, it's like, this is the like Redwood Tree Hall, or, you know, this is the Sparrow Hall or something. You know? That seems to be every meeting room in New Zealand is named after a tree or something like that. Maybe we're, maybe we were leading the way, you just haven't, you haven't heard about it yet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hey, yeah. I was curious about the pivot that you made out of big business, as I mentioned in your intro, into startup. You know, I thought that startups were this, the game of the 20-something. <laughs> Yeah. What? You're saying I'm not that young anymore? <laughs> well, hey, look, I'm I'm not saying anything. I'm 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 just making an observation. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I was at Netscape uh, in the early days, and I was also at, you know, WebMD in the very early days. Mm-hmm. And so while while I had been in large corporations, I'd also been in startups earlier. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, startups, startups are really fascinating because nothing is set yet in terms of the culture or the process. And so being able to get in with a team of people that you have a strong connection with and you have a lot of trust with and being able to create that culture and those processes and especially, you know, with design and making sure that design is a key part of that culture and is a core aspect of the product from the inception becomes just, it's kind of intoxicating actually, because then you can set it up to just keep rolling that way as opposed to going into a company later that's you know already established in terms of its culture and how it sees design and its customers and then trying to get them to shift perspectives. <laughs> so, it sounds like maybe you were slightly disillusioned. It's not disillusioned. It's just a it's how you want to spend your energy. Mm. So you can either question. Like, spin the spend your energy making something go cool and fast and far, or you can spend your energy trying to steer it in the right direction. Um, steer the Titanic. Yeah. What's that? Rearranging the deck chairs, I think, is an analogy that <laughs> can sometimes come up when it comes to changing how companies perceive design. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate that most of the companies I've been at have, a, have an appreciation of design. They may not know from a process perspective where it belongs or organizationally where to optimize it, but they understand its value. They just don't know how to, they recognize that value in other companies. They just don't know how to get it themselves. Oh, that's easy. They just have to pay McKinsey to tell them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They could, they could ask McKinsey that question. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know you've got some strong views on the, the latest uh, report that McKinsey released on the design org. Possibly we'll come to that later. But while we're <laughs> on this, this, this tangent of your stepping out of big business into startup business, yeah. What was it like so dramatically changing the scale and scope of your role? You know, going from being a, a leader of leaders to a leader, but hands-on back on the tools. Well, I think getting back uh, and being hands-on was definitely a huge shift in terms of, you know, how work got done because you couldn't just orchestrate it and delegate it and like, you know, facilitate it and do those types of things. Um, you actually had to do it and while you were doing all the other things as well. And so, you know, during during uh, pitch meetings, I might be actually working on the roadmap in the background, you know, when it wasn't my turn to talk. Like if if one of the engineers is like pinging me on Slack during one of these pitch meetings, it's like, hey, like you said this, but I need that. And like, I can't make that happen in the time frame we want. So can we do this instead? And so that I'm like trying to work that out while listening to the pitch. So, you know, it's a very different working style uh, in the startups, but it's much faster and it's much more tangible. You know, with large organizations, the coordination and the conversations that need to take place, lining everybody up, making sure everybody's heard, everyone's seen, you know, just the scale of that, it takes more time. Whereas if you're in a startup situation, it's much more immediate in terms of uh, being able to have those conversations and being able to make those changes. So it's a a different way of working. You touched on there the sort of need to help others be seen in the in the bigger tech environment in terms of the design leadership role. And as far as I can tell, you're someone that is incredibly proud of the investment that you've made in the leaders that you've hired and that you've managed. You know, you've you've mentioned on your website that 
you know, many of these people have gone on to very senior leadership roles, some of them C-suite level at companies such as SAP, GE, Twitter, and Mercedes, amongst some others. You're a man of few, few words on your website. Why is it that you felt compelled or that it was important to articulate your investment in others in that way? Well, I guess I, I feel it's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's important to me to celebrate other people's successes and being able to help people have those successes is important. And so I guess the, the only reason I put that up there was so I, it would clue other people in that if they are looking to move up in their career, I'm somebody who's helped other people do that. And I may be able to help them do that. You know, it's just, it was just kind of like, Hey, like I do coaching and I do mentoring. I mentor other startups here in Seattle and I've done coaching uh, for design leaders for a number of years. So just kind of putting it out there saying like, Hey, like, I have this experience and I've done this before and it's worked out well for some of the folks, you know, so. I'm sure, I'm sure that yeah. there are some people listening, if not everyone who is certainly, uh, I don't know if I'm using the right word, word here, maybe it's too strong, but suffered under the, the hands of people that aren't like that. And so I, I think it was re- it was just an interesting observation that you did call yeah. that out because like you said, it's yeah. kind of almost like a beacon for people yeah. that are looking for that. And who who did that for you in your career, Matthew? Oh, lots of people. My first uh, job out of undergrad was at a design firm, and I, you know, it was a it was a large design firm. It was kind of it was like IDEO, but it was you know a decade before IDEO. It was a, a company called Richardson Smith. Uh, they'd done uh, work with Xerox on all the copying machines, so Xerox would do the UI, but Richardson Smith would do the industrial design aspects of it. And so while I was there, I was hired originally to do packaging and other stuff. Uh, but there was a, a person on the team there, uh, Liz Sanders, who was doing interaction design. And Liz, you know, came in and said, like, hey, I need a designer to help me work on this stuff, you know, like doing there was an interface for a blood analysis machine. And I was like, cool, that sounds like fun. You know, I like designing stuff. And I was also the only designer at that point who was using a Macintosh. So one of our creative directors had gone out and bought an Apple computer. And he like he, he had the vision that like people were going to be designing on these things. They weren't going to be doing it by hand. And so uh, I volunteered to be the guinea pig uh, to do that. And so Liz is like, all right, so you know how to use a computer, which I barely knew how to use a computer. And she's like, yeah, so you're going to design stuff with me. And, you know, after a series of long conversations, she's like, all right, so you think in time, which is different than most designers that think in space. So this is going to be good because you can see how things transform over the experience somebody has with it. And so, you know, we designed two or three uh, products together. And then she really encouraged me to go back to grad school. And so that's what I wound up doing. Um, And I went and did a master's degree in cognitive systems engineering, which at the time there wasn't an HCI program or you know UX program anywhere. And so that was definitely a big influence. And then at Apple, I had a series of managers who were very supportive and very helpful. I was very fortunate to work with Don Norman when he was at Apple. I was in his uh, user experience architect's office. Uh, and then when he took over the advanced technologies group, I worked with him there as well. Matthew, that's not on your LinkedIn profile. I mean, not that I'm suggesting that go around, you know, 
dropping Don Norman's name on your LinkedIn profile just for shits and giggles, as they say. But that's that's an epic experience. You know, why is it that your LinkedIn profile only looks so far back as your time at WebMD? <laughs> to be perfectly honest, uh, ageism. Really? Yeah. I, I have I have interviewed at companies. I interviewed at a company in Silicon Valley. Uh, this is uh, a number of years ago. I was working with a VC firm. They uh, asked me to go interview at this position. They needed somebody to come in and run their design. So I went in and I was sitting there uh, in the CEO's office. And the CEO uh, walked in, reading my resume. And when he sat down in his chair, he looked up at me. And the first thing out of his mouth is, God, you're old. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you say to him? I said, you, okay. know you, you, you know you can't say that to candidates in an interview, right? And he's like, but you are old. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like, you can't, that can't be a factor in your decision making. Like, and, you know, we chatted for a few minutes. I'm like, obviously, like, this is not going to work out. So I left and the, I spoke to the VC shortly after that, the, who sent me over there. <laughs> And I'm like, you need to get this guy some coaching and you need to get an HR person like, connected to him really fast because I'm not going to sue He's you. He's a liability. Some, yeah. Someone's <laughs> going to sue you. Like, yeah. But ageism well, is, unfortunately, it's not uncommon in tech. And the sad thing is that, you know, folks over 50 have a lot of experiences and they have a lot of value that they can contribute to these companies. But unfortunately, most folks feel that, that you know, that's a, it's a young person's game and they have to, they have to, you know, stick with the 20 somethings or maybe the 30 somethings. And if they're really daring, maybe someone over 40. But what's fascinating for me is that, you know, in the UX community as well, this shows up in other ways where people will be talking about something as though it's brand new. <laughs> this just came up not very long ago. Like there's a discussion where folks are talking about like, you know, uh, some stuff within the design community and like design processes and other things. I'm like, you know, like this is like back in the nineties or like one of my favorites is like invariably somebody will have a post saying like, well, user experience was invented in 2005 when so-and-so wrote a book about it. And it's like, no, actually UX, the first time anybody talked about that was Don Norman at Apple. And that was back in like 1992. And like, this has been around for like longer than you've been alive. Uh, like, it's well, a, let's yeah. talk about let's talk about that. Let's talk about your your experience working with Don Norman at Apple. Mm -hmm. What yeah. stands out the most for you when you think about that time? Is it a maybe it's a feeling, or there's a story that encapsulates it, or you know, just describe, give us a bit of color. What was what was it like? The funny thing about Don was my my grad school advisor, uh, this guy Dave Woods. He's uh, since retired, but Dave was an expert in human error and you know, uh, resilience engineering and things. He had known Don for a very long time. In fact, Dave was a candidate as Don's replacement at UC San Diego when Don went to Apple. And so, I don't know, the first couple of weeks Don was there at Apple, he sent out an email to all of the design teams kind of, you know, as his as was his style at the time. He was very uh, opinionated and very blunt and would just kind of make these pronouncements and... I replied back to the thread, take a chill pill. You've only been here two weeks, <laughs> which I got, a, I got, a, I got an immediate email back from him saying, come to my office now, please. <laughs> the guy who was my manager at the time is like, oh, like you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to get some moving boxes for you in case, you know, <laughs> like, 
Uh, <clears throat> but Don and I had a conversation. It was really fascinating. He's like, so, you know, where did you go to school? And I told him, he's like, oh, so, you know, Dave, I'm like, yeah. So he's like, all right, so tell me about his theory of visual momentum and how it applies to user interface design. And it was just like super intense conversation. He's like, okay, you know what you're doing. All right, you're you're legit. And you're one of Dave's students. So you're like, all right, you're fine. We kind of hit it off after that because like, you know, he respected people who were smart and they knew what they were doing. And he himself is utterly brilliant. Like his his capacity to to identify the the root causes of problems whether they're product or organizational is phenomenal he also has a really funny sense of humor you know he's he's very authentic and really genuinely wants to solve problems and make things better but he is he is utterly brilliant he's a organizationally you know at apple there's a lot of challenges and i don't know if it was all those years in academia or just his own insights or how, but he navigated the politics of Apple so gracefully and so well, it was, it was kind of stunning. This was the time like before Steve came back. So we had, I was there with Michael Spindler and then Gil Emilio, and there's a lot of upheaval uh, at that time. Were you there only, only in the period between Steve or did you see Steve return and no, see that I, change? I, I'd gone to Netscape before Steve came back. And, uh, you know, it was really funny. Uh, I still, I still have the email. I still have a printout of the email. Like I, I sent Don a note saying, Hey, I'm going to leave Apple and go work at Netscape. Cause Don, Don wasn't convinced that the internet was going to be as big as it is. Cause coming from academia, he felt like it was pretty marginalized. And so I, I'd gone to Netscape by the time Steve came back. Mm-hmm. And I understand Netscape had some pretty colorful characters too. I think Mark Andreessen being one of them. Did you have any recollections or any experiences with Mark? Yeah, Netscape Netscape was really fascinating. It was uh, such an optimistic company that really felt like, you know, we could do anything and the impact that we were having was very tangible and, and just constant and ongoing. Like every day, like something new would come, you know, out of the internet. Um, you know, whether it was like, you know, finding the complete works of, you know, every author ever published online, you know, kind of stuff or like the first e-commerce things or um, the one of the teams I worked with, we were working on kind of the, we were shipping versions four of Netscape Communicator and I was working on version seven. So we were like doing very advanced work. And one of the engineers, uh, this guy, Mike McHugh, who's gone on to do Tell Me and Flipbook and a number of other companies. Mike was on a flight back from the East Coast and he came up with this idea of how to use JavaScript and layers to create the sense of dynamic HTML to create movement within a web page. Yeah, it was kind of a hack, but it was stunning. It was just like amazing. And then we were working on push technologies to push events out to the browser. Then we built a system called Constellation, which uh, was an immersive browser that basically took over your desktop. And the window would constantly reset itself to be the backmost window on your desktop. And so you couldn't see your Windows desktop. Uh, you would just see a Is Netscape. that why Microsoft crushed Netscape in the end? Were they pissed off about that? Yes, they were. <laughs> so <laughs> we, there was a demo of this at the uh, CES. And apparently Bill Gates was in the back of the room with a couple other folks. And after that, IE got a lot of money and uh, took off like a rocket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, later in your life, you went and did a deal with the devil for some funding. Yeah, only, te- yeah. only, only teasing. <laughs> yeah, 
but yeah, Netscape, Netscape is cool. You know, the, the team, the people at Netscape were just, you know, incredibly optimistic. And, you know, there was perhaps too much uh, enthusiasm for the company. One of the engineers I worked with, he and his wife were having their first child. And he sat next to me and his phone rang and his wife had gone into labor. And he was just about ready to check this code in. And he stayed a few more minutes writing code, doing stuff, doing stuff. About 20 minutes later, I'm like, your wife is like in labor. Like you have to go to the hospital. We literally had to like take him away from his computer to like put him in his car to send him off to the hospital because he had to he had to check in this code because it was like, <laughs> yeah, we were, we were all kind of uh, a little obsessed about things back then. So I know we're doing a bit of a walk down memory lane and there's, there's possibly one or two further s- stops that I'd like to make. The first of which is a call that I believe you received at some point around 2005 and it was a call for a job to work at SAP and mm-hmm. I mentioned it in your introduction it seemed to me anyway it's quite it was quite a special position it was a VP position that they'd created inside the office of the CEO what was it that you were hired to do for SAP so Hasso Hasso uh, Plotner who's the chairman and one of the founders of SAP saw a Business Week article about IDEO and got very excited about it. In the early days of SAP, when the company was just getting started, uh, they didn't have their own data center. And so in order to you know, test anything or see if, you know, if their product was working better or easier to use, they would have to go out to a customer to actually run it. Uh, and in the, in the course of doing that, they would talk to these customers and they would find out what their needs were and what their issues were and how they were using the product and what they could do to make the product better. And over time, as the company got bigger, they lost that practice of, you know, really connecting with the customers, the end users. SAP, like most enterprise companies, the person who buys the software is not the person who uses the software. And so they spent a lot of time with CFOs and CMOs and other folks at these companies, but not the end user. And so Hasso, you know, read this article and got really excited about what he was hearing about design and design thinking. And he reached out to David Kelly they had a great conversation and Hasso tried to buy IDEO, but Steelcase owned IDEO at the time. And Steelcase was also an SAP customer. And uh, they politely said, no, it's not for sale and we're keeping it. <laughs> so Hasso uh, decided he would create his own internal version of that team. And I'd been teaching at Stanford uh, for a few years. And so uh, I'd also been working with uh, Cisco on rolling out a human-centered design process across their organization. Uh, and so uh, I was asked to uh, consider this role at an SAP. They'd created a, a position in the office of the CEO called Design Services, which a lot of folks on the team really didn't like the name because they felt it you know, sounded like we were just making slide decks or something. And reading the job description and the mission statement for this team, it was very clear that was not the goal and that we were there to actually do an organizational transformation of the company around design thinking and to embed it in all of the development tools and practices across the company. You know, hiring folks, you have to explain this to them and show them the mission statement and and stuff, because they're like, I'm not gonna make slide decks. Um, (laughs) It was an unfortunate name, but uh, that didn't really slow down our mission at all. And so joining the, the company, we took the team from about four people, five people when I joined to 35 people within the first 12 months. And the design services team had 
designers, like you know, user experience designers, interaction designers. We also had business analysts. We had software engineers and architects. We had uh, an animator. We had user researchers. We had a whole mix of folks. We had folks whose background were in training and education. And so we kind of had a multi-pronged approach where we would do key project key projects across the company that were very high profile to show how this method improved the results. But we also had a training program to teach design thinking and the methodology to folks uh, to kind of give them that creative confidence to you know, solve these problems. And then uh, we also did a lot of organizational work in terms of how to structure the development organization and realign the development processes to include the designers early on in the process. Uh, and make it much more design centric. You yeah. summed that up so nicely. I just, for the people that are listening or watching this, seriously, this is not a small undertaking. Like this was, this is a global transformation. There's a lot of work that went into this. Yeah. Now, clearly, given what you've done and accepting that role, I think you spent four or five years at SAP. Mm-hmm. You're, well, hopefully, this is an unfair, a big propon- proponent of design thinking in enterprise. And you're probably not unaware of some people in the broader design community who I I think to test wouldn't be an unfair word design thinking. They feel that it waters down the expertise of what it takes to solve design problems, that it undermines their credibility and the credibility of the field. Right. Do they have a point? Only in as much as they're using the word design. I feel like oftentimes the word design, it's very unfortunate that design is used in so many different contexts to mean so many different things. If, in fact, I'll share with you uh, one of the projects that we did at SAP, it was in the human resources department. The, perform- the, the, the individual who ran <clears throat> global performance evaluation for the company and the person who did compensation planning for the company hadn't agreed on anything in months and there was a lot of tension between them. Uh, and so we did a, a design thinking workshop with them to try to align both the tools and the, the policies around how those things were done. And we successfully got them in a room together, spent you know a couple of weeks working through all this stuff and we came up with a solution that was primarily a policy change. And so I went back and updated Henning, who was the CEO, on this and Henning paused and he's like, wait, you designed, you know, this is a you know English to German translation kind of thing. He's like, you designed a policy. I'm like, yeah, we designed the policy. And he's like, but like, you don't design policies, you, you craft them. And, and then it took him a second to like, well, actually, yeah, it's design. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's an intentional arrangement of the things to create a better outcome and maximize the, resources. And he's like, Oh yeah. I'm like, and we also redesigned this contractual relationship with one of our vendors for our, some of our data analytics. And we're going to save about $7 million like per quarter on this. <laughs> and he's like, you designed a contract. I'm like, yes, we did. <laughs> the light went off because like for him, the word design coming from a German language meant you know, very like uh, aesthetic aspects of design, not the structural, you know, they have a different word for that. And in English, we use design to mean so many things that I feel like the people who are quick to dismiss the impact that design thinking has on both giving their colleagues confidence around their creativity and their creative problem solving, 
but also on just making design part of the conversation in terms of the planning. Uh, I feel like they're being rather short-sighted to be blunt. I have not found it, like at first I was a little skeptical. I'm like, you know, when when <laughs> coming from an actual, like real legit, like Bachelor of Science of Industrial Design kind of program and knowing what you go through to learn how to do that type of design, it's like, yeah, like design thinking isn't gonna give you those skills. Like it's not going to, you're not gonna wind up being Dieter Roms or Johnny Ive when you're done going through a design thinking workshop. But you should have greater confidence that you can creatively solve a problem and not just use, you know, reductive logic to kind of come to a conclusion that's the safest, most secure thing, but that you can actually have the confidence to take a risk, to try something new, to potentially fail and recover from it. And, you know, the things are plastic and malleable and you can change things. Like you can change an organization. You have to do it carefully and through consideration because you're moving people around and not pixels and they have emotions and pixels don't care. You know, you, you still can make changes. And I think that's the piece that a lot of the folks who are like vehemently opposed to design thinking are missing. Because, you know, design, I had a chance when I was at SAP, I spent a lot of time behind the curtain at IDEO. And, you know, design thinking is, in addition to all the other things, design thinking is also one of the most brilliant business development tools I've ever seen in my life. Because IDEO, you know, companies would show up to IDEO, say, design this thing for me. IDEO is like, all right, it'll cost you this much money. And the company's like, holy crap, I'm not going to pay that much money. And IDEO would be, okay come out and spend two weeks with us, pay, you know, 40, 60 grand or whatever for this design thinking workshop, and we'll teach you how to do this yourself. And something like 87% of those companies converted to a client at the end of the two weeks. It was so popular with one of SAP's clients, uh, Kraft Food, <clears throat> the guy who ran supply chain for Kraft Food, actually in his own budget, budgeted for 20 other teams outside of supply chain at Kraft to go take design thinking workshops from IDEO. And he would pay for the travel and the cost of the workshop. And it was all about the creative problem solving and the confidence to actually do that. It wasn't about gaining the skills to, you know, create the final artifact. It was about how do you solve this problem? How do you reframe the problem? How do you know if you're solving the, the right problem and you know, the needs of the people. It was never meant to replace the the craft of design and the the you know the details of, of design. It was meant to basically allow other people to work comfortably with designers on the creative problem solving aspect of it. Designers are have always historically been really bad about explaining how they got to their solutions. You know, because a lot of times it's it's a very internal. You see all the problems, you deconstruct them you know, either in front of you or in your head, and then you re start rearranging things and you do all these sketches and all of a sudden out of all this pile of sketches emerges the solution. And it's, you know, fantastic. In fact, like when I worked at this first design firm, the guys who worked in the model shop, because at this point everything was hand-built 3D models, they took great pride in the idea of, of their their model sitting next to the final product that came off the assembly line, you could not tell the difference between them. And like that level of craftsmanship and and you know the the understanding of the forms and the aesthetics and putting it together that way, design thinking was never meant to do that.
Well, it sounds like you feel that people that aren't a fan of it, who are designers, are needlessly feeling threatened. They feel that the craft, the craft side of what they're doing, they they feel that that's threatened, but they need not feel that way. Right. Mm. A, a lot of designers I've worked with, you know, coaching, they don't. They tend not to spend as much energy as I feel that they should in having conversations with their colleagues about how design can help them like make better products. You know, I, I feel like sometimes there is, there, there can be a sense of entitlement with design. Uh, it's true with engineering and marketing and everyone like, you know, but I feel like sometimes the designers aren't spending enough time listening to their colleagues, talking to their colleagues, being proactive, you know, designers do have a tendency to sit back and listen and synthesize and then come out with a, with an idea. And, you know, ironically, that's what design thinking is supposed to help them overcome by getting everyone else to understand how to do that exact same thing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> a lot of times operationally or organizationally, they will listen to like a new manager comes on board you know, they'll listen to them for a few weeks and then the manager will come back and say like, hey, like, we're going to do this now or we're going to do it this way now. And the designer will be really upset because it's not inclusive enough of design or it doesn't use the right words. It's like, well, you haven't said anything in the last three weeks while they've been doing all this planning. And so they assume that that doesn't matter to you. And now you're upset with them, but you never told them, hey, I have an opinion about this and you should do it this way. Or, you know, we've been doing it this way and it's worked out really well. And here's the evidence that shows this is the better way of doing it. Like they just kind of sit back and they get the answer. They get the, their boss telling them something and then they get frustrated about it, but they haven't, they haven't made the effort to kind of engage. So like a, like a brooding teenager. That, that would be one description. Yes. <laughs> like, like, I, I don't want I don't want to like, you know, name, I don't, I don't want to label people, but yeah, kind of like a brooding teenager. Mm. A lot of times designers just don't engage with their mm. colleagues and they don't engage with the leadership. Or if they do, they do it in a very ham-handed way where like, they'll just make a statement as opposed to asking a question. Or like, I was uh, just having a conversation with one of the people I coach and they were complaining about this. I'm like, well, did you, did you take a human centered approach to this? Like, did you ask them what their needs were? Did you ask them what their motivations were? Did you ask them to explain the context of where this is coming from? Or did you just go in with your own solution that you assumed was the correct solution because that's the one you wanted and just drop it on their desk and say, that's what we need to do. And it was the latter. And I'm like, yeah, of course they're like, think about it. Like, this is what you've been doing for decades as a designer is like telling people don't do that with your products. Like those, like listen to your customers and talk to them. And I, I feel like a lot of times designers ironically don't do human centered design when it comes to their role in these organizations. Yes. The, the, the truth is, is sometimes a dish best served cold or is that revenge? I'm not sure. I'm probably munging up my analogies here or my sayings, but I think that is a cold, hard truth. There you go. I may, maybe I got that one right. I heard, I've heard you reflect, Matthew, though, on your time at SAP and trying to overcome the challenges of scaling design or design thinking in this case. And you said, and I'll quote you again, the big challenge though, to be honest, is not always our team to the other team. A lot of times our challenge is designer to designer or more specifically school to school. 
And it sounded, this is, I suppose, tied into what you were just talking about, but more between designers now. It sounded to me that you were suggesting that design maturity needs to start with designers' maturity. I, that, yes, I I might use that as a quote at some point. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I feel like a lot of designers, their individual maturity as professionals kind of sets the maximum level that they can function at in terms of helping their design organization mature within their company. Yeah. You know, at SAP, you know, if you, if you talk to other people who are at SAP at the time, there was a well-known uh, schism between my team and the UX team. And it was fundamentally for these reasons where, you know, we had access to resources and people that they may not have access to, and they felt that they should have access to them. And it's like, well, we're working to get you that access and we're working to change this process. And, you know, we're doing it a step at a time, not a wholesale change. Organizational transformation is a long process and it takes a long time to, you know, turn that boat, especially in a company the size of SAP. And it's, you know, just because you have the opportunity to kind of change the the development process, for example, doesn't mean you can do a wholesale change of that process and swap it out for something that these engineering teams have never seen and forcing them to give up all the muscle memory around this, all of the infrastructure for the management and the planning of those, the development processes, all the tools, all the training, all the resources, the mindset, everything across 60,000 people. You're not going to just do that, you know, overnight and you need to. Why, why not? Why, why can't you do that? Why can't you change the mindset of people overnight? Well, what's a, I suppose what I'm getting at is people were on your case about the speed of the transformation. Mm-hmm. What risk or risks were you balancing at the cadence at which you were approaching it? What were you trying to avoid doing while still achieving the outcomes you were trying to trying to achieve? So one very tangible example, uh, there's a number of reasons, but one of the more tangible ones is that uh, over 80% of the world's business transactions go through SAP at some point. If SAP systems are off by a millionth of a penny within a year, less, far less than a year, actually, there would be economic catastrophe because money would just be disappearing off the planet. So going in and doing a wholesale process change and requiring these people to learn a whole new way of building products will probably introduce greater risk to the stability of that code base than what they would be willing to undertake. And as a result, you want to do it carefully in a well-considered way and make sure they're comfortable with it and they're on board with it. On top of that, a lot of these developers have spent their career at SAP and have never once talked to an actual customer. I had one individual who's actually a pretty senior member of the development team, the development organization. We took him out to see customers. When we got to the customer's office, he locked himself in the men's room. We were going to be there for two hours and he locked himself in the men's room. Could have had IBD. He could have, but he didn't. Uh, I I checked it on him a few times. He's like, nope, not coming out. I'm like, (laughs) you know, when when I get, when we get back to the office, you know that I'm going to get an email from Hasso wanting to know how this went because he's the one that like, this is his and like, what do you want me to tell him? And there was silence at the the door and he was willing to, you know, basically like get on Hasso's radar for not being following the the program uh, because he just could not bring himself to talk to a customer. 
he was terrified of it. It was just so foreign to him. Like he just didn't know why he should be doing this. And so a lot of that's one-on-one time. It's, you can't just like, you know, Hasso would get up and say, hey, we're going to do this. And people love Hasso and they have utter respect for him. But then they're like, yeah, but like we still have this other stuff we have to do. So eventually we'll do that, but it will take some time. And, you know, they'd want to have training on it and they'd want to have a process. And so that's what we we're working on is basically giving them that creative confidence, showing them how do you talk to a customer? How do you actually get a meaningful conversation with a customer that's not biased, that isn't leading, that isn't just confirming some hypothesis that you have? How do you actually deconstruct the problem? And, you know, one of the one of the products that we'd worked on, the two guys that ran the product had both written books on this topic and they were considered like experts in the field, but no one was using the product because it's not the way companies actually did this particular task. And so we had to work with them to understand it's like academically where your books came from when you were, you know, teaching this stuff in the university, this made total sense, but in practice, no one actually does it that way. So let's go figure out how they actually do it. And then we could update your product to meet their needs. And that conversation took three months. You know, they're just very like this, it's, it's very foreign to them. Uh, if they've never done this before. And, uh, and so doing that wholesale change overnight is, you know, it's, it wasn't really an option. <laughs> uh, we had, it took us many months to, to basically embed design thinking and design in the standard development. There's three processes at SAP, like one for long-term sustaining products, one for, you know, middle products that are going through iterations, but, you know, not super fast. And then there's net new products. And so for the net new products in the middle products, the design piece was played a much bigger role for the other kind of sustaining products, like the, the systems that haven't, like that just don't change that fast. Uh, there was still a role for design to play to make sure that we weren't missing anything, uh, in those products. I want to come back to the story of the engineer and the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly not all people and perhaps an unfair stereotype these days, but engineers have the stereotype of not being people that, and I'm generalizing here, who have signed up to work in enterprise because they want to spend lots of time in front of people they don't know, like customers exploring things that they're uncomfortable exploring. Mm-hmm. You know, and in terms of a design, a design thinking, design thinking would have been new to them, like we've just been talking about. So there's something around the pace at which you were trying to get them comfortable and build the confidence to do that. But does design thinking push people sometimes unkindly out of their comfort zones, given the design of design thinking? It definitely has the potential to do that. I think it falls on the people facilitating the process. So, uh, you know, most people, when they first use design thinking or learn about it, it either comes in kind of the abstract workshop you know, idea of like, let's redesign this train ticket machine uh, or parking meter or something, or, you know, it's on a, a product that they're familiar with where, you know, they're, they're going through that iteration, but usually there's, you know, a coach or a facilitator or multiple facilitators or coaches in some cases, helping that team go through that process. And, you know, there's still kind of the, you know, here's the, here's the basic idea and the basic skill sets and the steps and how we're going to be doing this. And, what the outcome, you know, like what you should be comfortable with in terms of the outcome. And then 
you know, being able to work with them uh, to actually go through a real product and take the time to do the research and the synthesis and talking to the customers and deconstructing the problem. Yeah, it is going to push people out of their comfort zone. It's going to make them give up some of their assumptions, you know, especially if, if the thing they're being asked to deconstruct is something that they've spent a number of years building, uh, they may be less comfortable kind of questioning it or taking it apart. Our approach was to, you know, show them projects where we had done this, where the outcome, you know, had these successes. And so we would, you know, show them like, you know, here's the, here's a human resources tool that we redesigned using this methodology and the impact and the customer acceptance of it and the adoption of it. Um, we can do the same thing for you and you can do it more importantly, you can do it for yourself. And, you know, it, the trick is around the creative confidence and the deconstruction of the problem. And so it's, yeah, it's getting them to be a little more comfortable uh, with that, but it's definitely pushing them outside their, their comfort zone. And designers are, you know, just as guilty as engineers of not wanting to be pushed out of their comfort zone. And, you know, marketing people and other folks, they all have the same, you know, it's like they have a routine, they know how it works, they can plan, you know, they can schedule their time. They, you know, it's, it's a routine. Uh, it, it's not, you know, to be pejorative about it or anything, but it's like that's, people have a comfort to that. They know what they're doing. It gives them confidence that they have value in the company. And you're coming in and shaking all that up and saying, trust me, there's a way for you to increase the value you're giving to the company. And they're like, but who are you? <laughs> so yeah. you must have had to have developed a fairly thick skin. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of disparaging efforts. Yeah. Fortunately, I don't know if you came across the thing I wrote about the CEO being the most important member of the design team, but that experience uh, at SAP definitely like made me believe that uh, you have to have, you have to have the support of the executives, especially the CEO. If you really want to make a design uh, transformation of your company, doing it from the bottom up is very, very hard. It takes a very long time. It's very Sisyphusian in its structure. But if you can get the support of the CEO and the other leaders, it's much easier to, to push through a design-led organizational change. Mm. So just coming to that article that you wrote about the CEO being critical in enabling design to transform the organization, you said in that article, building a great design organization is not about it being there from the beginning. It's about it being a cultural priority and hiring great design leaders. And that means it has to be a priority for the CEO. That's the end of the quote. But you've also said, and I'll quote you again here, if your company's strategic objectives do not place the same burden on design as on engineering, marketing, sales, finance, etc., you need to take a long, hard look at your organization and its design leadership. Mm -hmm. Those two statements appear to be in conflict with each other. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I, I should go back and do some edits there. Uh, so the, the, the first one. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I feel really, I feel really mean now. It wasn't mean like no, that, no, no, but it was it, to, it, to explore that tension. You know, because on yeah. one hand, one hand you're suggesting it really comes down to the CEO, and on the other hand, it was like I was reading it, and it seemed that you're suggesting that if the outcomes aren't optimal, then you need to look at your the design leadership, not necessarily the the C-suite leadership. Right. So it, uh, I think of those as an anded statement, and I'll explain mm -hmm. that. So design, 
you know, to, to make design a core part of a company, it really has to be the culture of the company. And the culture really comes from the CEO. Mm -hmm. Like my colleagues in HR would, you know, perhaps disagree with me about like, you know, collective, you know, creation of a culture and yada, yada, yada. But the prioritization of the culture, the embodiment of the culture really starts with the CEO, especially within startup companies. And if that individual values design, design will be one of the values, right? If they, if they value engineering over everything else, that's what the culture is going to be. And even if the, even if the CEO loves design, super passionate about it, places it front and center in the organization over time, as you know, leadership comes on board to run that design organization, if they're not taking the same, if they're not assuming the same burden that the engineers are or the marketing people are in terms of stepping up and taking on, like, I own this API, I own this milestone, we will deliver these things. If they're not willing to make that commitment, that's where you should question your leadership. Yes, if you have I get a, it. If you have a chief design officer, an EVP of design, VP of design, director of design, head of design, whatever, and they're not willing to basically put a stake in the ground to say what their value is, uh, what their team's value is, and how their team is delivering value for that company, that's a big red flag for me. Like a lot of times the designers like, well, I, I, you know, there's no metrics. It's like, you know, I just, I make the design and it's self-evidently better. <laughs> and to which is like, yeah, that's the equivalent of you walking into your, you know, parents, you know, dinner party and saying, Hey, I drew this picture, like validate me, you know, when you're like five years old, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's like an instant, like you're not, you're not at the table with the other people. You're not at the big table. Right. Because you're not you're not willing to put any skin in the game. You you want to make sure that like your design leadership is willing to make commitments and and the the other they, their team has a purpose. It's you know it's it's very hard otherwise to kind of manage like a design you know like design debt and a like engineering debt is a well known thing that has to be addressed because the engineers are like until we pay down this debt we can't meet this milestone we can't achieve this KPI. Design, like it's still very novel for a design leader to actually track the design debt on a product and be able to say, like, we can't meet this KPI until we pay down this design debt. And like, you know, the the actual cost of having a very inconsistent set of micro interactions with things, or the you know words are different, the icons are different, like the shades of gray are different, like you know whatever. It's like this is contributing to the the, the customers not being satisfied with our products. And if we get those things paid off our customer satisfaction score will go up. I come then, back to the br the brooding teenager here. It, it, yeah. it, so it sounds like, and I, I, I'm not afraid to go into this with you, and you're clearly not afraid to talk about it because it is the elephant in the design industry's room, the biggest one at the moment, isn't it, is this this idea of the table and the, the why aren't we at it. And it really sounds like what you're suggesting is that the reason we're not at it is actually more more than we are is is because of ourselves yeah hmm. I, I, I mean you've said and i'll quote you again you said that design's been at the table since the 1960s just not designers and you went on to say the unfortunate truth is that the designers who had been the champions were not interested or more often not capable of having objective business discussions so they were never invited to the big table mm -hmm. would design leaders who have an aversion to to numbers to business, maybe even just the, the general idea of what it means to work in a profit-making enterprise, would they be better off if they embraced the the dark side, if you will, and went and got an MBA? Well, 
I don't think that's the dark side. <laughs> First of all, we'd have to have a conversation about, to me, the dark side is creating like a weapon system, you know, it's like right. designing, <laughs> designing chemical weapons or something would be the dark side. I think design leaders who can have conversations about business are very valuable and can have a lot greater impact than the design leaders who just talk about design. You know, engineering folks in the engineering side of the house who find themselves in leadership roles can talk about business. They can also talk about engineering, but they don't just talk about engineering. They don't just talk about algorithms, you know, glowingly saying like, oh my God, like I've, uh, we have this new algorithm and we have to roll it out because it's such a cool algorithm. It's going to be great. No, they frame that up in terms of the business impact, you know, being able to say like, we can reduce our costs this way. We can automate this process this way. We can do these other things. Designers who can do the same thing from a design perspective, like they can be, they are at the table, but you know, in a lot of organizations that I've worked with, it's very clear that the executives value design. They understand that design is a core differentiation and that it's something they have to have as an organization. They don't know how to manage design teams themselves. And so they go out and, and find somebody who's going to manage the design team. But there's the difference between kind of managing the team and managing the function of design. And so a lot of times these design managers wind up being people managers and they may have huge organizations of hundreds of designers. And, you know, they're looking at the operations and the processes and the tools, you know, they're doing team building exercises and coming up with design systems and all these types of things. And they're just, they're managing the design team as a set of people, but they're not playing a role at the strategic level in the organizations because they're not able to kind of translate that into the business strategy. And so they're relegated to kind of like, you like manage the designers, make sure they're happy, well cared for, motivated. Other people will come in and like, you know, give them work to do. And, you know, they'll be, you know, talking about like why this product has to be this way or what this customer needs. You as the design leader just have to make sure like, everything's taken care of in terms of, you know, the, the, the base needs, you know, it's like the delivery, yeah, the delivery yeah. And, and infrastructure. And so, you know, they're not really prepared to engage at that level of saying like, you know, why are we building this product or why aren't we building this product? And have we ever looked at this market and, you know, doing a quick analysis, I think we could probably increase our market share over here by this percentage if we did these types of things. And People will say though, how do I, how do I know, or how do I, who coaches me on how to do that? You know, it's very easy for the design leader to sit back and go, well, that's not my thing. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a designer. And I know this is something that you've railed against in your UX Strat 2021 keynote that you delivered when you opened that conference last year. And you finished off with a really interesting section and there was tons of value in the whole talk, but the, the end of it's particularly good and people should definitely watch it. You had a seven point plan and I'm just going to read these out really briefly and then you can riff off this however you like. But you said under the title of how to earn your seat, first of all, learn politics, then know how your company really makes money, then know something that your CEO doesn't and deliver impact with that knowledge, do it again. Five is take responsibility for a specific financial target that, and then meet or exceed those targets. Six is do it again. And seven is join and found another company and do it all over. Yeah. 
Yep. That's it. Mic drop moment. We're done. No, I'm just kidding. Yep, that's it. I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, the, the trick about um, knowing something your CEO doesn't know and, you know, delivering value against it. Like that to me is like the, the fastest way to you know, like kind of get a seat at the table. It's not about risking bruising their ego. It's not about, you know, well, I guess you could, depending on how you show up and tell them that you know something they don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like plenty of ways to muck that up. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of ways. To, yeah, definitely. But you know, assuming you do it, you know, authentically and sincerely, and from a you know place where you want to benefit the organization and not shame your CEO uh, or the other leaders, being able to deliver that kind of value is is critical. It's like having that insight is what got all of them that seat. Like being able to do that. And, and, you know, in terms of like who mentors me to do that, it's like who mentored the VP of engineering to do that? Who mentored the chief marketing officer to do that? Like, that's just the nature of moving up in an organization if that's what you want. The other piece that's super critical is a lot of times designers think they want that seat, but when they get it, they realize, ooh, I don't want to be here. Like, like when you're involved in a conversation, you know, like at Zeitworks, it's like myself and the other two co-founders. At one point, we had to have a conversation about like, where are we taking this company and what does this mean? And we're going to have to cut people loose and we're going to have to realign things. And you're having a direct impact on people's lives and on your own life. And you have to be very objective about it. And it's it can be a very uncomfortable set of conversations. I had to make my first person redundant when I was 21. Yeah. for the company, the design studio I was working for. And this was someone who was 30 at the time, had just gotten married, mm -hmm. was my senior by years. And I still remember that sense of dread and a little bit of self-loathing. It was a time of the GFC and just the gravity of the situation. It's a, it's a horrible thing to have to to do a necessary thing, but it's definitely not something that if you if you don't want to be in that situation, then leadership is certainly not not the seat for you. Right, and you know you can't always find a creative solution to that problem. And so you know I think for designers wanting to to get the seat at the table, it's like they should know what they're getting into before they really talk about it and really try to do it. But you know being able to re repeat the, the success of like identifying an opportunity that your company hasn't exploited yet and taken advantage of yet and deliver value on that. Being able to, you know, take financial responsibility for one of the key, you know, milestones or, or you know, aspects of the company. Like that's where the real skin in the game comes in. It's like, you know, businesses, generally speaking, most businesses want to make money. And so if you're like one of those people accountable for the actual making of the money, like, your relationship with the other leaders changes dramatically. Uh, There's an individual I worked with at one large company who was notorious. Uh, if you asked, if you got him into a conversation he was uncomfortable with, he ran sales. He would just simply ask you, how much money have you made for the company today? Because he can tell you how much money he made for the company today. And so, you know, it's like that's, it's a, it's not all fun and games and it's not, <laughs> it's not happy joy, joy kind of thing in all these companies and each one's different. And some of them are much more laid back and, you know, chill and others are much more serious and cutthroat, which is where the politics, the very first thing about politics comes into play. You know, I tell a lot of the people I mentor, like, you know, I ask them, it's like, have you read Machiavelli? 
and they're like, oh my God, like that's horrible. Like you're, I'm like, no, it's not like <laughs> you can use Machiavelli for good, the same that you can use it for evil. And there's, there's, you know, allegories in there. Like one of my favorites is, I forget which chapter it is, but there's one about when to build a castle and when not to build a castle. If you're, and it's basically, if you're a prince and your people love you, you should not build a castle because you'll just tax them heavily. You'll take up all the resources and they'll resent you. If your principality is attacked, your people will defend you because they love you. However, if your people hate you and they already resent you, then yes, you should definitely build a castle because you're going to need to defend yourself against them and whoever comes in to try to invade your principality, which is just a nice way of saying, like, if you have a great relationship with your coworkers and your team, which is what you should try for, you don't need to build an empire. Like you don't need to put up all these defenses, but you may want to think about some defensive postures and gestures, you know, and stuff in the organization if you're not well loved and well respected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in which case, you probably fix that. And so there's and there's in that there's some nuance there, right? It would be easy to 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 listen to that story and go, if I'm not the the prince or princess or prince person who is having all their people love them, mm-hmm. then I must be the bad person who has to build a castle, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship that you have with your peers is going to be cordial, at least to begin with. And I imagine you experienced some of that at SAP. You kind of touched on that. It wasn't because you weren't necessarily doing a great job or you weren't loved by the people that mattered. It's just that you needed to do practical, take, take practical steps to ensure that you were able to protect the transformation that you were there to see through. Right. And to also help them understand that while it was taking more time than perhaps they wanted, it was going to help them in the long run. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. And, but, you know. Matthew, you're someone who has brought a lot of depth to the work that you've done as a design leader. And clearly from our conversation, you deeply care about design playing a role at the highest levels of business and designers sort of stepping up into that role. Mm-hmm. What's, what story or stories do you suspect that design leaders are telling themselves that they need to re-examine if they're going to have greater impact and more enjoyable careers? Well, I think the, the main one is kind of this assumption that because you have the title, that it somehow magically grants you all sorts of access and influence. You know, in a lot of companies, uh, individuals who may not even have a title, but who've been at that company for a very long time, have far greater influence than somebody who has, you know, a string of titles or, you know, executive senior global vice president type of thing. And so I think that's one story is, you know, to really be aware of the influence that you have, irregardless of the title that you may have. And I think that that's probably the big one. The other one is that design as a corporate resource or differentiation or, or the practice of design uh, is independent of the people. It's like saying like, you know, this is a technology company, but only as long as this same group of engineers exists inside of that company, like they would be a technology company. Even if they swapped out that entire engineering team, they would still be a design or an engineering company. And the same is true with design. It's like, they could still be design centric, even though they may swap out that set of designers, they're still a design centric company, you know, Apple. The, the, the team that brought you OS X and the original iOS and all of the hardware and everything, some of those people have moved on and done other things, but you still have Apple as being the design, you know, icon that it is. 
And so I think that's the other piece is that not to assume that they are the only reason that company has design or that they're the only capability that company has to bring design, I think is probably the other big lesson. Like if it's a design-led company, it's going to be a design-led company. Even if you leave, they're still going to be design-led company. <laughs> Yeah. So keep your egos in check, people. Yes, <laughs> you're you're part of it, but you you you're not you're not the whole. So that's right. a yeah. really important couple of um, points to finish on there, Matthew. What yeah. an excellent, thoughtful, and wide ranging conversation. Thank you for taking the time today to share your stories, your expertise, and experiences with me. Thank you. I, it's been a great opportunity to chat with you. So I, I hope it I hope it's valuable. So. Most definitely, most definitely. Matthew, if people want to find out more about you and all your wonderful keynotes and art and the, the great things you've contributed to the design community, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, they could probably reach me through my website. It's just matthewholloway.com. They could go from there. So Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. And Thank to you. everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Matthew and all of the great things we've spoken about. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe, and also pass the conversations along, pass the link to Brave UX to someone else in your network that you feel would get value from these conversations at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis. You'll find me pretty easily. Or there's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes. Or head on over to my website, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey.